Introducing the new era of digital identity with Socure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why Socure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. Socure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, Socure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with Socure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit Socure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. We need to really rethink how we train individuals uh, in these in these spaces because what, what what are really needed in government right now are a whole set of skills, not you know certainly around all the bridge building, and that requires a deep understanding of other sectors. Uh, uh, certainly, anyone working on climate today needs a very deep understanding of the purpose landscape in the private sector. And then you can find those mutual advantage, but you can't find it if you don't understand how the private sector operates, what the incentives are, and the same thing around the nonprofit sector or the role of foundations. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Public sector leaders face a variety of challenges due to the current political and social climate. At a time when polarization is high, Bridge building can be hard. The pandemic is just one example of a new generation of complex problems that we're facing, stretching across the public and private sectors and flowing over organizational boundaries. Historically, we've looked at government for big solutions, but the reality is the government we have now is often a poor match for the problems we face. We need a fresh new approach. To be honest, we need a government of bridge builders public managers and leaders who collaborate with partners both inside and outside of government to get the job done. They manage horizontally instead of vertically. They see their role as connectors and they identify which players have the assets needed to solve the problems at hand. In the book, Bridge Builders, the authors provide a new model that leaders can apply right now to transform government performance and restore public trust. And I'm fortunate to have both authors of that book on the show today to have a conversation about their approach and how it can impact the future of government. With me is Bill Eggers and Don Kettle. Bill is Executive Director of the Deloitte Center for Government Insights and a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. 
He's the author or co-author of numerous books, including The Solution Revolution, and If We Can Put a Man on the Moon, both from Harvard Business Review. Don is a professor emeritus, former dean of the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, and a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. And he was previously the Sid Richardson Professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, and his bill calls him the Dean of Public Policy. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here with me. Hey, Brian, it's great to be there great with you. Great to be with you. Huge Absolutely. fan of your podcast. Thanks so much. And, and I'm a fan of the book. I appreciate you guys sending me a copy. of. I've really enjoyed it. And I mean, you guys kicked this book off pretty fast, getting right into the the vending machine model. I, I'll tell you full disclosure, I, I got the book on the same day that I was heading downtown for an event at Nats Park. I was sitting in a suite and I was waiting for people to show up and I pull out the book and start reading. And one of my buddies comes in and he sees the vending machine model as I'm getting into the book and he goes, what is that? So we, it started up a conversation, which I, which I really enjoyed with him, but help me, help me understand this. And and Don, from, from my understanding, you're the one that kind of coined this phrase. Um, help me understand and help the listeners understand the vending machine model of government that, that you do inter- introduce in the book. You are, Brian. Thanks. And it's so great to be with you and have a chance to be able to talk about this. The The, the big issue is is this. We we tend to have, uh, we being policymakers and citizens and often members of the media, uh, kind of kind of model in our head about how it is that we think government works, which is that we, there's something we want to do. And so we, we put our money in the machine. We push the button, whether it's uh, services for the homeless or maybe health care or transportation, improved air traffic control, and push the button and just wait for the services to come bouncing out. Uh, there's a sense that it's a kind of linear function where what really is going on is a, an effort to try to just understand that uh, we don't have to understand what happens on the inside, that it's a kind of semi-automatic process that somehow manages itself. There's, as a result, relatively little attention to management. And when, when problems come up, as they inevitably do, the issue is, uh, is just simply a matter of crawling inside the machine and trying to rewire it or fix some of the gears and levers. But the problem is that government doesn't operate that way. It hasn't operated that way for a long time. And so what we have is a system that's much more a, a system of, of interconnected networks of service providers, some in government, some not, where over time uh, they have to work together to be able to make things happen and so what we have often is a is a model that doesn't fit the reality. And what makes that especially bad is that when problems come up, as inevitably they do, we tend to apply the wrong kinds of fixes, fixes that have to do with rewiring the vending machine, changing the gears, and, and not focusing on the real problems that exist and the important solutions that are inevitable, inescapable, essential for 21st century governance, which is this model of bridge builders. Instead of thinking of it as a linear, we need to think about it as much more network oriented and where the key is trying to find the bridge builders who can make those connections. Yeah. it. it I mean, like I said, it, it made a lot of sense. What something that, that you said in there, you said it, it hasn't worked for a long time. I think a lot of us look at um, maybe different moments in time, different catalysts that have caused change. Some of some of the things being like uh, 9/11 or going through different recessions or or different 
different events that happen, the pandemic obviously being one of them. And I think that was a, a great catalyst for change, especially in the, the sense of government technology. But you said it hasn't been working for a long time. Where do you think some of the changes have kind of enabled this type of system to continue? And how do you see it potentially changing moving forward? Uh, you can go back a long ways, but if you uh, even even look at the movie Oppenheimer, it's it's really a story of a guy who had to weave a whole bunch of different parts together. That was, if anything, not a linear function. It was a system that was connected between scientists uh, who had to try to find ways of working together, uh, different facilities that were operating independently, but had to be brought together to produce a weapon that worked. And our story since then in particular has largely been one of trying to find ways of, of connecting this network. And if you imagine what would have happened if Oppenheimer himself had viewed the process of creating the bomb as a vending machine, uh, there was no machine that existed. There was no button to push. And in particular, Oppenheimer didn't start out as a government employee. And so it's unclear where government would have even been able to do it to begin with. So and when we say it's been like this for a long time, you really can can go back generations to explore and discover the ways that uh, the government worked in ways that really don't match to the, the kind of models that we have. And it's that, that mismatch is a is a problem of helping government adapt and also helping all of us understand the situation. That's interesting, Bill. I, I'm curious to get your take here because I. Don, I like how you put that, like the the bomb didn't exist or the actual, whatever that transaction is in that process, it didn't exist. They had to approach it as a, a net new thing, but that's also a completely different way of thinking for government, right? You they A lot of times you have departments and agencies that are really governing or they're, they're innovating based on compliance or they're building based on compliance instead of maybe what the right thing is for for the job how do you think that leaders can enable teams or that government can even create a culture where leaders can enable teams to think outside the box like that to drive innovation and really kind of foster this this complex uh system that we're definitely in as you talk about in the book yeah uh brian uh, great question and that actually leads me to another one of those very historic events and that's putting a man on the moon and the Apollo mission, again, uh, pretty much a net new thing. It involved uh, thousands of industrial firms, hundreds of academic centers, uh, all sorts of government agencies, and, you know, like 100,000 uh, different individuals from the public sector, the private sector, academia, and so on. And when you when you look historically, and I think we're going to we'll see some of this with climate, is uh, government does a, a pretty good job of approaching these net new sort of uh, wicked problems and doing it in a very network model. And we're seeing that within climate and the structures that states like California and New York and others are setting up have set up uh, to create the green economy. And so what are some lessons we can learn uh, from NASA, which is one of the best uh, agencies in the United States in embedding bridge building into their culture and systems? I mean, when you think about NASA, it's been one of the greatest, uh, America's greatest government catalysts, uh, from cordless drills to digital cameras to the mouse I'm using right here, uh, all originated from 
NASA grants and research, uh, it begins mission innovations in-house, releases it into the marketplace and, and so on. So what they do is NASA is a dream workplace for many people. Uh, and it really encourages learning from and making connections outside organizations, supporting career advancement, offers short-term opportunities in private industry and other government agencies. And NASA employees are expected to spend time working for other teams or even other government agencies to cross-pollinate ideas. And critically, external collaboration is a key criteria on which it evaluates its executives. They also have entire teams of people who just are scouting uh, what's going on in the private sector. Uh, they have employees with deep knowledge of understanding new technologies in a range of different areas. They're doing market sensing on them. They're looking at where those technologies can contribute to the mission of space and dedicating principal, uh, dozens of principal technologists and systems leader into that space. They also are tracking progress along those lines. And lastly, NASA does a really good job of using all the different catalytic tools that government has in its toolkit uh, to enable the sort of outside market innovation and spinning in innovation into NASA. And that's everything from prizes and challenges to tax credits to uh, the SBIR program, to procurement, to competitive grants. Uh, government has a whole range of these indirect tools that they're that they can use, and NASA has become a real expert on how to use them to essentially scale up capabilities around space in in a way that NASA couldn't do simply by itself. As you were talking, one of the things that was going through my mind is kind of how it feels like, at least in today's day and age, the private sector, I feel like, builds on advances and successes in, in in a much faster rate, right? You see one company advance, and then everybody sees that, and they no longer take steps backwards in that way. They, they take steps forward now, and they continue to build off of each other. And and you talked about NASA. Another another thing, and and Don, you mentioned you mentioned Oppenheimer and the atomic bomb, and it it made me think around the Defense Department. And how we we look back traditionally at wars and World War One looked very different than World War Two, which looked different than the Korean War, which looked different than Vietnam and so on and so forth. And now we're into urban warfare, et cetera. And we've had to evolve. And I started think, uh, thinking about the the incentives, right? Well, we're there's obviously high highly incentivized to advance because we need to stay one step above the competition. You brought up NASA and the moon. That that was because we were trying to beat another country to get to the moon and so on and so forth. And it feels like, and, and again, going back to my private sector analogy, everybody's trying to make more money than the other company, trying to be more innovative than the other company. It's, it's a race. And it doesn't feel like that level of innovation is building on top of other pieces within maybe, let's, let's just call it the civilian sector of government. What do you think it would take to drive that level of innovation and that we see um, in those other spaces that I mentioned. Don, you want to take this one? Sure. I, the uh, the incentives piece is really a tough one to try to crack because the the natural incentive for organizations really is a kind of first cousin of the vending machine model that we talked about earlier. What what organizations want is to jump in 
to control this problem, to control the solution, and especially to control the money that goes along with it. And so that discourages as a natural state of being other organizations from being able to link up. Uh, so that getting the incentives for doing what it is, it's really not a kind of natural process is one of the key problems that we talk about. But there are a lot of ways of doing it, beginning with the fact that uh, organizations are most effective in solving problems if they agree on the problem that has to be solved. That is, if you can you can align the missions of different organizations so that they understand how each contributes to the solution of a problem. That may be uh, getting a hundred different nonprofit and, and for-profit organizations in Houston together to solve the problem of homelessness, which ended up reducing homelessness by 64% in a decade. That's just simply stunning. And it's because there was an alignment of mission. It's because the, the funding followed the mission and that there was a language of data that provided a way for organizations to talk to each other so that everybody understood how each was contributing to the accomplishment of the problem solving that needed to be done. Brian, yeah. I think you, you need to break this into two buckets. Uh, so the first bucket is internal innovation within government and how do you create a government that's more agile, more flexible, that's faster, able to adapt further. And there's a whole set of different uh, tools and incentives, structures, performance evaluations, and other things you can do along those lines. Uh, the second bucket is external. Uh, and how can government essentially, when it's approaching these wicked problems, whether it's homelessness or climate action or workforce development or so on, how can it create the right set of incentives for external players to adapt more quickly? I think um, we're seeing more progress uh, and more quickly on the latter than the former, again, using a lot of these indirect tools of government. I, you know, when we've looked at this closely, I, I think that the incentive piece is one of the maybe two or three most important uh, factors when you look at the success or uh, failure of uh, bridge building efforts. And when you think about incentives, you need to uh, first, as Don mentioned, identify players, decide collectively, they have to align on goals, but then you need to understand the different players' risks and incentives, and then you craft interventions to shape market behavior. Uh, and the, the incentive piece, so look at it from a cybersecurity standpoint, and you've covered this a lot in your podcast, Brian, but the cybersecurity of infrastructure, critical infrastructure is widely seen as a desirable outcome. And it has been for decades, yet we've seen startlingly little progress in the last 30 years since it's become a policy priority. And why? Uh, it's because the continued vulnerability isn't because people don't understand that cybersecurity is important. It's because many of the players in the private sector, for example, have conflicting incentives. They don't have the incentives to share all of the intrusions. They're worried about being embarrassed and so on. So you have to craft the right set of incentives to make that happen. And when you look at something like the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really about climate change, that's about creating the incentives uh, for the transition to green energy. And originally it was thought that the private sector that it would, might cost uh, 200 billion or so uh, 
in terms of tax uh, credits uh, to the private sector to do this, but we've already seen this is likely to be more like a billion dollars because it's it's really created uh, a lot of energy and a lot of incentives for the private sector to to really make very big investments into clean energy. And um, so that's an area where the private sector or the public sector can do uh, have a huge role in facilitating the development of these new markets that's needed for the next economy and setting up both the incentives and the structures and systems to enable that to happen faster than it would have happened without government involvement. No, Bill, I, I totally, totally agree. And in the book, obviously, you go in depth about the need for these these private public private partnerships to be able to advance let's say the, the business of government and as we were talking my my question to you is going to be do you think the culture of government is ready for this right now and it seems like the answer is no unless unless i'm wrong but i'm i'm curious to know bill what do you think it'll take for the culture of government to be ready to kind of negotiate a complex ecosystem like this well, we, we, we surveyed over close to 300 uh, senior executives from the SES on this topic of collaboration. And the findings were really interesting, Brian. First of all, we found that the vast majority were, were involved in various collaborations right now. In fact, 20% of all the respondents said that they were involved in 10 or more public-private sort of collaborations, uh, which, which is pretty impressive in that regard. Uh, and they said that the leadership understands how important this is. It's it's not something that's unknown at all, but what they viewed as one of the most important obstacles right now is that they said there's no incentives to do this. Right now, a lot of it, they're doing it on their own time. They're doing it because they know it's important for the mission. And so we need to do, I think more agencies do what NASA has done was craft these incentives and empower individuals at all levels, not just within a small little office of public-private partnerships to engage in these sort of partnerships. I, um, Brian, I spent uh, last week, I spent three days in California. They had a big California Economic Summit, over a thousand government officials, industry leaders, uh, looking at sustainable infrastructure, climate action, what California can do, how can California can lead the world in that area. And it was a who's who of those in government and industry. And the interesting thing about it was the level of optimism that they had, but also the fact that all of these government officials were spending actually probably the majority of their time involved in these sort of ecosystems and partnerships because within that area of climate action, there's no other way to get there in the end because it's going to be the private sector that's going to need to adapt a lot and adapt. And so between the federal government money and very substantial state money of $50 billion plus putting into this space, there's there's a lot of resources now to enable this to get done. And that is changing the culture. Every single session really was about cross-sector collaboration, bridge building, partnerships, getting the incentives right, and so on. So what, what's interesting, I think, is as we're approaching some of these new challenges, governments are starting off with these systems and structures that are much more of a network model than a vending machine approach. And the question is, how do we get this approach more baked into 
more of our traditional systems and traditional business of government. So I, I've used the word complex a, a few times because it is kind of a, a complex ecosystem that it starts to build. Um, and I think it feels like the climate has been more welcoming for some of these public-private partnerships on the back end of the pandemic, simply based on necessity, right? We talked about necessity before, the necessity during the pandemic obviously did it. And it feels like the climate has now warmed up a little bit for more so government bringing the private sector a little bit closer um, based on based on need, right? But my my question is, where do you know where the buck stops, right? Because you oftentimes you get either, sometimes a government agency will say, well, no, my partners did this and this, and it's not our fault, or a private sector agency or a private sector organization will say, no, it wasn't us, it was this. But when you tackle really difficult challenges, you're gonna fall on your face a few times before you get it right. And there has to be an appetite for, as I mean, they say it in Silicon Valley, right? You fail, you fail fast and you keep going. And I'm not sure if there is that appetite sometimes in both arenas when they're working together, but how do you know, Don, how do you know where the buck stops when you're having these types of, again, I'll say it, complex partnerships and complex ecosystem and you're tackling these, these challenges? Yeah, the, this basic problem of accountability in many ways is, is the central uh, political and organizational and in many ways theoretical problem around the problem of trying to find a way to get governments to, to work effectively, uh, federal, state, and local, and even governments around the world as well. Because the, the problem is increasingly that there's, there's no problem that matters that any one organization can control. And, and let me repeat that, because that's, that's a, an important finding that we have in our book, I think, that, that there's, there's no problem that matters that any one organization can control. And that frustrates policymakers often, it frustrates the media, sometimes frustrates citizens because they want to just reach out and if a problem comes up, grab somebody by the throat and blame them for what it is that's going on. But that's hard to do if there are problems where they're not responsible for the results completely. And so it, we are increasingly drifting into a world where there is uh, there can't be accountability in the old sense of having a linear sense with let your process with somebody at the very top that you can reach out, you can grab, you can hold accountable. But the alternative that we think that works makes the most sense is that instead of the vending machine model, think about government policy, federal, state, and local as a kind of symphony orchestra, where uh, you have uh, somebody who's terrific at playing the flute, but you wouldn't want to put them in charge of, of playing a violin. You may have somebody who's great on the cello, but uh, would be lousy at the timpani that you have a group of musicians who come together, each expert in their own ways, who contribute to the, the basic process of making beautiful sound. And how do they do that? Uh, they do that because they've got a great conductor. They've got essentially a bridge builder who is there, who sees it as his or her job to bring these different experts together to create the kind of outcome that we want. And that, that's the way that accountability is increasingly working. It's, it's finding experts who can contribute to the solution of a problem and then finding bridge builders, the symphony orchestra conductors, to be able to connect them and to be able to focus them on the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. In your opinion, does that conductor have to be a traditional leader? Could it be somebody within the organization that wants to drive change? I, I think that... Uh, it's a great question, but I think it's a way to try to think about what problem do we want to solve? 
and who's in a position to try to help solve it. And so it can be somebody at the very top. It can be somebody further on down. We've actually seen lots of examples of different levels of, of individuals who have stepped in and found ways of being able to weave the pieces together. It's uh, somebody even like Clara Barton back during the Civil War who uh, had no official government position, but who found ways of being able to improve treatment of battlefield injuries in ways that were hugely successful and then led to the creation of the American Red Cross. You have people who during Hurricane Katrina stepped in and found ways of of turning the operation, the response around, so that we were able to create successes out of failures. And in fact, the, the one of the most important lessons about the response to Katrina is that uh, the initial response was focused on very much a vending machine model. People saw Katrina, saw people stuck, and they saw it as their job to try to manage their agency. And what happened instead when success began to happen is that Admiral Thad Allen from the Coast Guard came in and he saw the problem, focused everybody around that problem, and began pulling together the individuals who and the organizations that had capacity to be able to help solve the pieces. So he was the orchestra conductor here who found a way to be able to make that happen. And that's that's how the response changed and how the accountability problem got solved. Bill, would you say it's fair? I mean, as I as I listened to you guys talk and I was thinking about this during the book, it feels like a lot of this just boils down to improved communications, not to completely simplify your your paradigm because um, because I, I don't want to boil it down just to that, but it, it also feels like communication is a big piece of that, right? It's probably a big reason why we haven't seen that civilian sector kind of building that we talked about earlier. Um, but would you say that's fair that just improved communication could really be a big catalyst for for creating a bridge building type atmosphere? I, I think improved communication is important, but it's one of many elements because you can have great communications but still fail to align on goals. You can have great communications, but uh, if you muck up the incentives, uh, it's still not going to work. Uh, and more so than just communications, I, I think data sharing is really the glue that binds these ecosystems together. Uh, going back to the Houston example with the just a huge reduction in homelessness, uh, Houston's success depend on many factors, but one of its secret sauces was data-driven collaboration. Uh, when you think about homelessness, it's a wicked problem exacerbated by everything from mental health crisis to unaffordable housing, uh, from not enough help for veterans with disabilities. And what they did in Houston was they built a data system that links together over a hundred different service providers in an integrated community of care strategy. And so I, I, I think what it did was it was very data informed. And in many cities, you had a lot of organizations providing duplicative services. No one was talking to another. You might be giving services to an individual on one side of the street. The same individual got services from another uh, provider on the other side. And they didn't, weren't able to talk to each other. And so the, the Houston system was real time and it changed everything about how everyone worked. Any partner from any agency could access and update any client's file 
whether doing outreach under a bridge or intake at a women's shelter, partners could see how a client had actually interacted with the system. So they became not just a number, but you could see, you know, their history, what their life was all about. And you could track each person's needs and outcomes, identify their points of vulnerability, where they're eligible for aid programs and which services they'd received. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, they were able to then measure outcomes uh, based on this sort of a system. So it that notion of having that data to hold the glue together so everyone was on the same page and seeing the same reality was, was really, really important uh, to this. And when we talk about data sharing in government, uh, I think too often it's just about sharing data between different agencies and levels of government. But when nonprofits, private sector firms, uh, other partners are providing the vast majority of actually uh, on the ground services for individuals, we need data sharing platforms uh, that cross sectors right now in Houston search uh, system is a great example of doing that. Uh, one of the things that's important to understand is that uh, the data increasingly is the language that holds these networks together. It's being able to understand uh, through the data what problem we're trying to solve and then how well everybody's doing it. And the second point that's worth making about Houston when it comes to homelessness is to, just to get all wonky here for a second, what they did is to create a, a data system that tracked each individual in real time through the system. And so it would find somebody who's experiencing homelessness and they could identify that person and then, and then follow them through the services that they received. Ultimately, they hoped through, through permanent housing, which happened for almost two thirds of all the cases. But the other thing that they did was to track the performance of each of the partners. And again, there are a hundred different organizations that are involved here. And so they were able to track the performance. So the idea was to, uh, an individual uh, is experiencing homelessness. What kind of problem does that person have? Is it uh, the fact that they, they just lost a job, that they have enormous medical bills? I uh, bumped into somebody the other day who was talking about a homeless person here in Austin, who, as it turns out, uh, was homeless because the choice was either paying the rent or paying for the cancer treatments for the spouse. And so they went with uh, with the health treatments, but the problem was that the person ended up homeless. Uh, that's a very different problem than somebody who's on the streets because they have a drug addiction or alcoholism problem. And so you, you identify the problem in the person, you track the person through to see how effectively the services are, and then you identify which organizations of which services can help which people and then you track the organization's capacity to be and results in being able to do that so it's this it's a, almost a matrix of following the individuals follow the organizations and follow each of them to the system to see how the what how they match up and what kind of results that they produce yeah i like the results and the outcomes based approach too because at the end of the day uh th there are a lot of problems and you're trying to get it it's not just one simple answer right and there's different outcomes for the different problems and i think making sure that you're really driving towards what is going to create change and not just be quote unquote compliant with whatever your original mission was i i think is important and it, you've talked i mean throughout the entire show we've we've mentioned a, a lot of things you just brought up the, the necessity to be able to negotiate with data and other things there's a lot of skill sets that are involved with becoming a, a quote unquote bridge builder 
And one of the things I really liked about your book is I, I've read a lot of a lot of books where the the authors have an incredible paradigm, incredibly smart, absolutely right, but there isn't the okay. So what's next? How do we how do we really take this from uh, theoretical into practical? And I thought you guys did a really good job of that at the end. And I want to give both of you an opportunity to kind of talk about some of the key tenets of kind of helping teach that next generation of government to become bridge builders, to be able to become someone who can navigate successfully this complex ecosystem that we talked about. Bill, I'll start with you. Sure. And I've been speaking uh, recently at a lot of uh, graduate schools of public policy and management where where Don's been a dean and a professor for many years. And um, I, I think we need to really rethink how we train individuals uh, in these in these spaces because what, what what are really needed in government right now are a whole set of skills, not you know certainly around all the bridge building. And that requires a deep understanding of other sectors. Uh, uh, certainly anyone working on climate today needs a very deep understanding of the purpose landscape in the private sector of, of what the incentives are and the obstacles to more sustainable consumer products. Uh, what's going on in terms of a double and triple bottom line. And then you can find those mutual advantage, but you can't find it if you don't understand how the private sector operates, what the incentives are, and the same thing around the nonprofit sector or the role of foundations and so on. And I, I don't feel that that is taught almost anywhere nearly enough is that sort of cross-sector collaboration and, and deeper understanding uh, the sort of thing that NASA tries to inculcate. So I, I think we need to rethink a lot of the, the education there where you have a lot more at the university level, graduate school level, uh, business and government uh, management fingers coming together and, and students taking classes across that continuum and then bringing in a lot more areas that are critical now in government, such as whether it's behavioral science or human-centered design and journey mapping. And a, a lot of those tools that are traditionally not taught when people are looking at public policy or political science. So I think we need to kind of radically rethink the curriculum along those lines. We've also done a lot of work looking at the future of learning in government, and a lot of that's going to be much more experiential. We need to allow people, as NASA does, to spend a year or two in the private sector and more tours of duty in the public sector, like we've seen the, with the White House Innovation Fellows or USDS or 18F and, and other areas. So the more we can, we've already seen a lot of these silos and the boundaries between public and private sector and nonprofit sector and are increasingly very, very blurry. And within that sort of a world, and to really truly understand it, you need to understand the different sectors in a, in a much deeper way than I think is taught today. What I think is important, and, and Don, I want to give you a chance to, to also respond there. What I think is important, and you mentioned the tour of duties, and I, I think those are absolutely vital, but I also think they're bi-directional. Because government gets a lot of value from bringing yeah. people from industry in into their 
into their world and they can learn kind of the best practices happening there. But at the same time, if we're going to be kind of building this true bridge builder mentality, the people in the private sector have to have a better understanding of how to navigate government. And, and I think by getting those lessons through those tours of duty, again, it works bi-directional and that's where the value can really happen. Don, what, what are your thoughts here on these key tenants? Brian, that is absolutely right, I think. It, it's a way of understanding that the road has to go in both directions. The key is trying to find a way to try to adapt and adapt quickly enough to the as fast the, as speed as the problems are evolving themselves. And, and Bill is right. There's a major challenge here for public affairs education. Uh, in particular, the, the idea that the, the key to try to, to jump into this problem-solving business that we increasingly must have isn't just the, the kind of let's, let's push the decimal point out two or three more places so that we can get statistically relevant results. And the key is also not pretending that the, the key to solving the problem is to jump in and, and learn as much as you can about a particular policy area. One of the things to try to approach this is uh, in the appendix of the book where we have laid out an, a syllabus for an instructor who may want to teach this. Suppose that somebody says, uh, oh, I, I get what you're saying. Suppose that, that you talk to somebody, Brian, and, and they're convinced that what you're saying is the way we need to approach problems. Now, what do we do? And in fact, there's a syllabus that's laid out in the appendix of the book so that instructors can figure out how to, how to teach what we think has to be learned. The other thing is that we also have a 90-day a guide for new government officials so that they can be successful. And it's a way of trying to pull them out of the mindset that they're going to come in, they're going to spend the first 90 days completely rearranging all the boxes, all the chairs, all the structures, all the funding, and expect that that's going to produce the kind of results that they wanted. Instead, it's a matter of stepping in and in the in, in the first 90 days to, to understand the, the, the two or three or four, maybe five different problems that they have to face. Who is in a position to help them do that? And how can they bring the pieces together? It's a way of trying to build bridge building in from the very beginning. So we have these two appendices in the book that lay out a game plan for figuring out how to do this. Yeah, I, everybody listening, I absolutely recommend go out and get the book. Um, and, and when you do, and you sit down, I, I recommend grabbing a highlighter and a pencil, which is what I did. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great, great wisdom in there that I wanted to make sure that I captured and grabbed, um, really thought provoking. And I, I enjoyed it immensely. So definitely go out and get the book. Um, before we, before we wrap up, I, I want to jump into our final five questions and Don, I'm going to, I'm going to start with you. Um, what is the best advice that you've ever gotten throughout your career? Uh, the, the best advice, I think, is to uh, essentially go out and try to get your a little bit of dirt on your fingernails, to be able to understand what it is that's actually happening and, and to drive your the work that you need to do by understanding the way that other people have been successful trying to solve it. And particularly one of the things that's been great fun in the book is not only having a chance to work with with Bill, who is just such a stunning force in dealing with these issues of public management, but it's also picking up the lessons that people are actually out there doing, uh, who are already doing it, that every single proposition we have is something that, that somebody else out there has taught us, because uh, that's the, the way that other people have proven success. So, so that's the, the first, that's the best piece of advice I ever got. I like that. I, I was just listening to uh, a podcast episode actually with uh, with General or Admiral McRaven, 
And one of the things he talks about was trooping the line. Don't get so high up that you're not willing to kind of go walk the line. And he he talked about walking in at 2 a.m. Um, into an area while he was uh, overseas. And it, I think it was a laundromat. And the the soldiers were complaining that the laundromat, uh, they were all, all the all the washers were always broken. And he he realized, you know what, this might seem inconsequential, but it's not to them and it's not to morale. And he brought it up. At the, he's he's sitting there in front of the Joint Chiefs and he's talking about fixing laundromats and everybody's kind of baffled. <laughs> but it's so important. And, and he says, troop the line. Make sure you always have the pulse of what's going on. And I, I like that. Getting your, getting some dirt under your fingernails is always important. Bill, what about you? Uh, two quick ones. Uh, right out of college, working the think tank, and uh, I had an opportunity to have dinner with a, a well-known economist then named Alan Reynolds, and I was just trying to understand what I do in my life, and also how do I make any money, because I was uh, at a think tank, kind of an intern level, making <laughs> barely enough to put any food on the table. And what he said to me was, he said, don't don't be a generalist like a lot of these folks are focus on one area uh, and just be the very best at it that you can. And it was out there, aim for being the best in the in, in your field. And, uh, you know, 30, 35 years later, I've been focused on public management uh, and public-private partnerships and government technology. It's worked out pretty well. The other great piece of advice from a former colleague uh, when at one point, uh, so an, another competitor was trying to steal me away, uh, offering a lot of fancy stuff uh, to me and uh, the shiny new toy. And he said, well, my experience has been that you want to work with people you like. And if you like the culture, the people like you, you like working, you have mutual respect. That's that's the most important for happiness. And 21 years later, I'm I'm still at Deloitte uh, based on that great advice. Yeah. Uh, to- Two great pieces of advice. I like those. Let's let's flip it now. And Don, what's the worst advice that you've gotten? Uh, worst advice I got was to, uh, and this actually happened early in my career, where so I was thinking about doing a, a book on the Federal Reserve based on the observation of a colleague who said, what's the most important organization in the government that nobody's really writing about from the uh, the political and managerial point of view. And of course, there's, there's, there's lots of work about the politics of the Fed, but not a whole lot about what happens on the inside. And so I said, well, this sounds kind of cool. And I started digging around in it and had a senior colleague come and tell me, oh, you really shouldn't do this because it's really too risky. And uh, that turned out to be terrible advice because the book turned out to be great fun to do. And it's the book in the end that got me tenure. So if I had paid attention to his advice, who knows where I'd be, but I, I, I wouldn't be, certainly wouldn't be sitting where I am now. I love stories like that. Uh, Bill, yeah. what about you? I, mine would be more general. I, I think when, when you're younger in your career, a lot of times people come with a lot of fire in the belly and oftentimes approaching issues and others from a very, let's call it either ideological perspective or very specific worldview and uh, and I think that always almost always ends up in disaster when it comes to public management. Uh, you know, think about uh, uh, a mayor. You can't run in a city on on ideology, as some cities have found out recently. People care about potholes and traffic and public safety, and those are all about really good management. So. 
uh, you want to focus on evidence, be open to new ideas, open to changing your mind about what works based on the data, be flexible, adaptable. And what's, what's interesting in politics, they, they, they call that sort of adaptability and flexibility and open-mindedness, wish-washiness, right? <laughs> when in fact, that's a great characteristic of being a good leader, I think. No, I, li I like that because you're, I mean, you, you have to be open to, to change your mind on things because you, you need to get, um, in fact, you should be open. You should want everybody's. It's one of the things that um, drives me crazy right now in the environment that we're in. Nobody wants to hear the other side of the story. They just want to propagate theirs. And you should be, you should be absolutely um, not willing, but you should, you should, it's almost a responsibility that you need to hear all sides so you can make the best decision. I think that's, that's important. As we were talking, I mean, we brought up NASA and going to the moon. We brought up Oppenheimer. We, I think we got Clara Barton in the Civil War. Um, so I'm excited to ask you guys this question. Don, we'll start with you. Who is someone in history that you would like to have a conversation with? Uh, that's such a great question. And uh, Brian, you shared this with us in advance that I've been thinking about lots of people I'd like to have over for dinner to have a, a, a great roundtable conversation afterwards. But I would start with Alexander Hamilton because he not only was the, the guy who was the pragmatist at the very beginning of the country to figure out how the country ought to be run, but I have a sneaking suspicion that he would fit right into the conversation we're having now, but add things that we haven't even thought of given both his sense of history and his sense of pragmatism about how we can make government more effective and more accountable. So uh, the watching the musical aside, which is always great fun, I'd want to sit down with Hamilton and try to figure out what it is that he's figured out about where we are. We're big Don, I think I'd invite to that. Uh, I didn't, I'd take a couple guests to that dinner with me and uh, I'd bring uh, Jefferson and, and Madison that, to that. You might day. start a fight there. <laughs> I know, it's not a duel again. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I think that would be interesting. I, I, I've also, I mean, I think Winston Churchill, you've got a, such a great writer, thinker, orator, uh, leader, military tactician, just endlessly, endlessly interesting because of his knowledge of, of, of history and of how erudite he is. So I think uh, Churchill would be uh, way up there on my list. I like asking this question. And one of the questions that I absolutely hate getting asked is things like, what's your favorite movie? Or Because I, how do you narrow it down, right? And when I think about this question, I remember I fell in love with history um, in high school. I had a AP US history teacher that really helped me understand the human element of history. And it, this question is so difficult for me to answer, but it's one of the reasons why I like asking other people this question, because it really shows you that, that where, like from a human perspective, where they're, they're really focused and where they're, where they're interested in kind of um, gaining deeper insights. So kind of th this, this is one that I love asking and I'm, thank you guys for your answers. Um, Don, what is inspiring you right now? The, the thing that inspires me most is to watch people who have figured out how to do this, whether it's Admiral McRaven, whether it's Thad Allen, whether it's people who have, have tackled really, really tough problems and have found their way through. And I find that enormously ins inspirational. And, and as you point out, Brian, one of the things that is important is to get a sense of the human dimension here, because there are, there are human beings behind all these great decisions and understanding what it is that drives them and how it is that that we get 
to where it is that they want us to go and how they can help us get where we want to go. That's, I think, one of the things that is just truly inspirational to, to discover people who have stumbled into complex, complicated problems and found great solutions. Uh, it's just, I just, I find that all inspiring and, and tremendously inspirational. And Bill, what about you? What's inspiring you? I spend a, a lot of my free time both uh, reading and listening to podcasts on things like the science of the brain, the psychology, mental health breakthroughs, other sort of uh, massive, I, I think, life-changing breakthroughs that we're seeing almost every day right now. And uh, so I spend a lot of time on that. And um, also, I we spend a lot of time walking in the forest behind behind our house uh that no better inspiration than trees or two weeks ago going to Muir woods and seeing these 300 400 year old old growth forests all right last question and this is really a selfish question for me i i asked my guests because i want to get smarter i want to find out where my smart guests are getting smarter so don where do you go to self-educate uh, I'm, I'm an academic and have been in this business for 45 years. And so you, you might expect that the answer would be, I just pick up a pile of books and journal articles and read them. So I know what all my colleagues are saying. And that's, that's always useful to do. But the thing that I find most useful is to, is to talk to people who are in the front lines, to follow that advice that you were talking about from Admiral McRaven of walking the line, uh, talking to people, uh, finding uh, ways of just reading about what's going on and connecting those dots about what's happening. Uh, I uh, just, uh, for, for me, the entire world is about public management. A couple of years ago, I was in the hospital for an overnight stay. And it's one of those things where uh, nothing serious, but they wanted to wake you up every two hours to make sure that your vitals are all looking good. And so there's a, a nurse who came in at two o'clock in the morning and I struck up a conversation and uh, I said, and he said he's he's a nursing now, but used to be a firefighter in Austin. I thought, wow, what a transition that is. And I was saying in particular that the way that Austin has sprouted up with so many high rises that the business of firefighting had to have changed. And so he said, well, yeah, that's the case. But, you know, we we get put out a whole more, more fires and do are a whole lot more effective in our firefighting. Uh, not by spraying water on things, but by trying to create a building code that people found most effective and that prevented the fires. So that I, here it is, two o'clock in the morning, I got nothing else to do. And he took his time to try to explain what it is that he thought was most important. And what he was talking about is that we needed bridge builders to try to work out a partnership between the city and the firefighters, the building code and all the private companies that were building the buildings to begin with. Uh, I found that really interesting. And so for me, my, my radar is always on scan to talk to people who have dived into this kind of stuff and not the conversation I was expecting to have at two o'clock in the morning in the hospital, but wow, did I learn a lesson there? I love that because it it's not, it, you start having that conversation and a lot of people, I mean, nine, nine out of 10 people might've said, we just need more water or we need yeah, more tools right. to put fires out. Yeah. And the real answer to the to the problem was no, we have to change the way people are essentially living to eliminate the the causes of the fire. So I I, I think that's incredible when it brings yeah. it full circle. Uh, Bill, what about you? Where do you go to self educate? Yeah, in addition to doing a, a lot of interviews, we did well over a hundred interviews for the book uh, podcasts. I probably listen to two to three hours a day 
of podcasts uh, like yours, Brian, and across all kinds of different fields uh, from uh, Ezra Klein's uh, podcast. He's done such a great job focusing on education or things like the Huberman Lab, where he'll spend mm. two hours going into great one. detailed scientific evidence uh, and journals to uh, something like Smartless for Fun, which is a, a really great one with Jason Bateman and Will Arnett. Uh, and books, I try to get a book or two in each week that I've read, that I read. And uh, so I'm a huge consumer of information. And for me, the key thing is to always try to avoid confirmation bias by reading things across the literature, getting a lot of different points of view so I can sort that out myself. Yeah, I mean, going back to what we talked about before, um, I'd always try to expose myself to things that are unknown to me because I think I have an opinion until I start reading or listening. And it really, it either strengthens my opinion and I get smarter or it tells me, no, Brian, your opinion's absolutely wrong and this is why. And But it, either way, I get better because of it. So um, totally agree with you. And Don, Bill, I can't thank you guys enough for coming on. Again, I just want to say to people listening, go out and get the book. It's it's fantastic. I think if, if you're listening to podcasts like this and, and you're enjoying conversations like this, you're absolutely going to love it. And I, I recommend you bring some tools to be able to harvest a lot of this information, like a highlighter and a pen or, or whatever you do, because you're going to get a lot out of it. But gentlemen, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Brian. It's just such a treat having a chance to be able to have this conversation with you. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. The- This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.